Hi there, and welcome to Manningham Christian Centre's Sermon of the Week. I'm so glad you joined us. My name is Matt Wyatt, and I'm the lead pastor here. My prayer for you is that as you listen, you encounter God and find this message practically helpful. It would mean a lot to us if you were able to rate and subscribe. This not only lets us know how we can serve you better, but also spreads the message to those who need to hear it. Hey, thanks so much again, and I look forward to catching up with you later. Bye. Great to chat to you. Thank you, Bill, for the invitation. It is a privilege to uh, speak to you. It's a privilege to follow the people who stood at the front and the names who are on the screens. Uh, Having run a church for 20 years, uh, the saints that you lose are painful. And for some of you, that would have been painful seeing some of the saints that you've lost. Isaac Newton once said, if I could see further than others, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. Out the front here were the giants, on the screen were the giants. We stand on the shoulders of giants. And in our nation, we stand on the shoulders of giants as well. And uh, Bill had asked me to, to reflect on uh, a series we've just pr- produced, and as a way of introducing the material I want to bring to you tonight, I want to w- want you to watch a trailer, which should come up. Jesus have influenced Australia. 
we will discover stories of faith from history and today of people with deep personal faith who have profoundly shaped this nation. Christian capital to this day. The very first words of our constitution, you know, humbly trusting in Almighty God, is woven into the very fabric of who we are as a country. Billy, Billy said afterwards that he'd never come across spiritual hunger like it in Australia. You can tell thousands of stories of people who you know, had their whole life transformed and, and started new lineages of faith in Australia. That's the consequence of meeting Jesus, is that you want to do what he did. You want to be his instrument, if you will, for, for good in the world. I believe when it comes to faith in this nation, um, th there's an opportunity, a, a great hope that we're not dealing with a group of people who hate Christianity or hate God. We're actually dealing with people who don't understand Christianity, who don't understand who Jesus is and what he's done. For me, I think for faith to run deep in Australia, it starts in families. They change the lives of dozens and dozens of kids who have no other opportunity and almost nobody knows. That's, that's a remarkable thing. One day I had his thump and there was a tree just by the back fence there and it just fell over and it didn't pull, it didn't pull a root out of the ground, it had rotted out right underneath. That's something that I don't think we want to see happen to our culture because the, the deep roots of Christianity are really critical for the health of of the nation. Join us on this journey as we discover where faith runs deep in Australia. We filmed a number of our series overseas in the middle of COVID. We realised we weren't going to be able to leave our lounge room, let alone leave the country. So we decided we wanted to focus on our nation and put together this series, Faith Runs Deep. For those of you who would like to know, Faith Runs Deep is, uh, is a 12-part DVD. Now, I know, there's a bunch of you thinking, seriously, Carl, who has a DVD? Well, apparently a lot of people do. Uh, so we still, there you go, I see your hand. Uh, so, so it, but you can also you can also stream it from our website. We've got a, a Watch Plus streaming platform, and and just for this conference, we're, we've actually done Jesus the Game Changer one, Jesus the Game Changer two, and Faith Runs Deep, and for this conference you can get the three of them for sixty dollars. Uh, ten weeks, ten ten half hours basically, thirteen half hours, twelve half hours is about sixteen hours of material, uh, and for sixty dollars. So see my friend who I met this afternoon. But also if you want to, if you'd rather read, we actually put 24, 20 stories together in a book, an anthology, because there's more material uh, in this series than we were able to put on the, on the DVD. We, we interviewed, uh, on the video series, we interviewed like 45 people for Faith Runs Deep. So some of those stories, uh, you can read about them. And, and so why, is all this, why does all this matter? Well, one of the things I want to say to you why this matters is because stories matter. I'm going to talk about this a bit more tomorrow morning, a bit more about stories, but I want to say this right now. Stories matter, not because it's the way we entertain ourselves, but it's the way we pass on values. 
I mean, you think about this. What do you, get, what do, you do when you get together as a conference like this, when you bump into friends you haven't seen for, 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 since last year or a few weeks ago? What do you do? You tell stories. What happened last year? When we get together as a family, what do we do? We tell stories. Why do we tell stories? It's not just entertainment because we're bored. It's actually, they contain values that we pass on. We do it as families. We do it all the time. We get together Christmas. And you know what's bizarre? We tell the same stories as we told last year. And nobody says, Grandma, seriously, five years, no new stories. There's something about how we pass on values. Now you think about this, I wanna talk about this tomorrow morning again. We do it as a family. We do it as a community. We do it as a nation. And here's what I, as part of the motivation for this series. What are the stories they're telling about the Christian church? in our nation in the last 20 years. And most of, know, most of us know they're not good. And most of us know that the, the kind of outcome of that is this sense that, well, the church sits on the outside of secular Australia. There's a sort of story, a narrative, a culture in our nation that's developed over the last couple of generations, which goes something like this. When Australia was settled by the convicts, in 1788 and they sent shiploads of convicts out here. They were the offcuts of England that no one wanted. They shipped them to Australia. They were a godless secular group then. And all these years later, we're a godless secular group now and nothing's ever changed. And the Christian church almost sits on the edge of that. And it's, there's a sense that we almost be apologetic that we're the church within Australia. There's this idea that we're a great nation, fantastic nation. If it wasn't for the church messing it up, we'd even be better. Is that true? No. Now, no. absolutely, but the deal is this. We will say that here as a group of people, as Christians gathered together, in a secular environment, are you quite as confident? And that's one of the things that we need to deal with because the trouble is, and here's the motivation, we are losing our stories. And we need to create, quoting somebody else, fortresses of memory that helps our nation understand who we are as people. The, the name Faith Runs Deep actually doesn't come from us. It actually comes from a guy called Clive Hamilton. He's not a Christian. He writes, uh, he, I think he's actually from Sydney. I don't know him personally. He writes a, a lot of material uh, in secular spaces, especially like ABC uh, Religion, ABC Online. And, and in 20, 2015, which I know was a long time ago, 2015, he was writing an article in, uh, on the, I was online article uh, in, on the ABC site. And it was kind of asking the question about PC. Do you remember PC, when we were talking about being politically correct, now everything's woke. It's the same stuff, it's just changed names. And he's talking about being PC and all the issues with being PC. And then he says this, he said, we need to be careful though, that we don't just jettison everything from the past. And here is a secular writer and secular thinker who makes this statement. He says, I'm not a Christian, but I believe that the cultural legacy of Christianity runs deep and should not be discarded. Now, the people, why would he would say that is because he understands our history. One of the quotes you just saw uh, was from a guy who, whose name's Roy Williams. Roy Williams is on our series. Roy Williams has written a number of books, one of them called Post God Nation Question Mark. 
And when Roy Williams wrote Post God Nation, he started to think about the influence of Christianity in our nation. And here's a, a longer clip of what he was saying when, when we chatted to him. This was shot in South Australia, by the way. Uh, the Prosopis of Christian capital to this day. Most of our institutions, our ways of thinking, our patterns of individual behaviour are rooted in the Christian church. I realised how ignorant I was, even as a, a well-read, practising Christian for 15 years, I realised how ignorant I was of the history of my own country. And uh, I was now in a position to answer people when they said, oh, the history of Australia, Christianity's either played a minimal role so interesting what he said that there's this notion that the Christ, that Christianity, if it has any, it, it's had a minimal role, but any role that it's had has been a negative role. And what Roy Williams discovered when he did the research and wrote the book Post God Nations, that's simply not true. Our role is to tell the stories of faith that have helped shape our nation. That's what we've got to do. We've got to remind ourselves. We've got to remind our children. We've got to remind our communities. We've got to be those who are confident about these stories. So what are the stories? Because you might be thinking, I'm not really sure about the stories. I know about our church. I know about the church influence, the ch influence our churches have. But what about those stories? Tonight, I want to give you a snapshot of some of the stories that we can tell about how Christian faith, Christianity and Christians have shaped who we are as people. It, that is really significant to who we are as a nation. And one of those is that faith was here from the, the start of European settlement. You actually saw Sandra Dumas on the, on the, the trailer. She's a pastor and Tweed Heads. Her and her husband, Willie, run an uh, Indigenous church uh, in Tweed Heads. And when we chatted to her, she said, as she said on the, on, on the clip then, I believe faith has been here for centuries and centuries before any of us have been here. Some of you will be nervous about that. That sounds a bit like syncretism. But keep in mind that in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the writer Ecclesiastes says, God has put eternity on the hearts of humanity. Remember when, when Paul was talking to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 1, verse, verse 20? What does he say? Nobody has an excuse whether you've heard of Jesus or not because you, in a sense, you'll be judged by how you responded to what you saw because the invisible qualities of God have made, been made visible through all of creation. And that's what Sandra is saying. The Indigenous of our nation have always been spiritual people. She goes on to say, uh, we needed Jesus and that came. But that's why the Indigenous of our nation are such spiritual people. But what about those who are on the first fleet? Who was on the first fleet that made a difference? Well, one of the people was actually Richard Johnson. Now, if you know some of your history, you'll know Richard Johnson was a chaplain on the first fleet. And he came out as a chaplain with the six or seven ships on the first fleet. So why was Richard Johnson on the first fleet? And some of you will think, well, good cushy government job. Had probably had great retirement benefits take a job with the government, get on the boat, sure, I'll get back to England eventually, great, safe career. That's not why Richard Johnson was on the first fleet. 
When the first fleet was first announced that they were sending the, the, the convicts to Australia, the, the, the British had lost the war uh, with the Americans, they were, couldn't send any more convicts to America, they had uh, hulks with prisoners on the Thames, they were not sure what to do, what do you do with all these prisoners? So they decided they were going to send them to New South Wales. One of the people who was clearly very unhappy about that was a guy who's, who you would know called William Wilberforce. Now William Wilberforce was in Parliament, He'd been in British Parliament since he was 21. Remarkable story of coming to faith himself, William Wilberforce. And then William Wilberforce heard about that the First Fleet, was incredibly upset, and he goes to William Pitt, who was his friend. William Pitt was now the Prime Minister of England. He said, well, if you're going to send these people to the other side of the world, we want to choose the chaplain, the person that's committed to the gospel and the message of Jesus, we want to choose that person on the first fleet. And William, William Pitt agreed with William Wilberforce. So Wilberforce then went and spoke to his friend, John Newton. Now, John Newton, you'll know, wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, the old one, not the one with the new hipster verse in the middle of it. It's just a bit of a, a later edition. Now, John Newton, you, you might think about him as being a, a hymn writer because he wrote Amazing Grace, but John Newton was actually a, a really key church leader in London. He ran a church called St Mary's Woolnow, which is just near the Bank of, of England and it's still there, Bank Station. So, and, and John Newton was a really key individual and, and Newton and, and Wilberforce were friends. So they spoke and John Newton, because of his connections, knew a guy whose name was Richard Johnson. And he writes to Richard Johnson, he says to Richard Johnson, they're sending the first fleet, we want a representative of the gospel and Jesus on the first fleet, and we think you're the right guy, will you do it? And Richard Johnson said, it's the dumbest idea I've ever heard, or a different phrasing to that. He really didn't want to go. And he goes home and he has this thought, what if God's in this? What if God, this is God's call on my life? What if this is my moment for the gospel, the Great Commission? And he goes back to, William, to, to, to Newton and to Wilberforce and said, I'll go. But he had another conversation that he had to have. You see, Richard Johnson was engaged to be married and he hadn't been married yet. And he was engaged to a lady called Mary Burton. Now, asking someone to marry you is a tough call. It's a little nerve wracking. How's this conversation? We need to bring the wedding forward because we're going on a cruise. <laughs> you imagine that conversation? Do you know on the first fleet, there was one married couple, one married couple, Richard and Mary Johnson. And they came to Australia because they wanted to bring the gospel to this part of the world. And they were followed by Samuel Marsden who gets a rough deal in history, some of it justified, but Samuel Marsden actually took the gospel to New Zealand. Samuel Marsden and Richard Johnson were followed by Moravian missionaries, Wesleyan missionaries, the Church Missionary Society, the London Missionary Society. They went across to New Zealand, they went through the islands who are now today 95% still Christian. The intriguing thing is that Richard Johnson being on the first fleet was not just an influence on the first fleet, even though he went home and felt like he'd been a bit of a failure, was not just an influence on the first fleet, it set the tone for who we were as a nation. 
And that was actually continued on after him for years and years and years. Richard and Mary, Richard and Mary Johnson, Richard Johnson and Mary Burton ought to be held up as, as enormous heroes of faith within our nation, but they're hardly ever mentioned. They brought the gospel here and they set the tone for who we are as a nation. The next thing to see is the, the treatment of Indigenous people. And what happened in the earliest years, and if you look at the stories told about the Christian church, what we're told is that we've, we've failed the vulnerable, as in children, and that's clearly shown through the Royal Commission and the Institution of Abuse of Children. We've, we've, we've failed those who are struggling with their sexuality, and we've failed the Indigenous and failing as an institution. That's the story that's often being told. And the intriguing thing about the, the Indigenous is that there's a sense that the Christian church has failed the Indigenous in this nation. But that, we've been hurt by association more than what the church has actually done. And in the earliest years, Christian missionaries were the people who actually made the most difference. There's a guy called Robert Kenny. Robert Kenny wrote a book called The Lamb Enters the Dreaming. Robert Kenny is a lecturer at La Trobe University. We asked him onto the series. He didn't want to do it because he's not a Christian. He's not a person of faith. But The Lamb Enters the Dreaming is about the first uh, indigenous people in Victoria, one Willie Wimmera and Nathaniel Pepper who became Christians in, in Victoria. But, but in another place, here's what, here's what Robert Kenny said about the, about the Indigenous and who cared. In the mid 19th century, secular belief in a future for, the Abor for Aboriginal Australians or the right to that future was difficult to find. Those who believed in such a future were not, were driven not by visions of a democratic equality, still less by enlightenment philosophy, but overwhelmingly by dogged Christian faith. The only ones that cared, who believed that we were one blood with those indigenous people, a quote out of, of Acts chapter 17. We went and filmed at a place called Warren Gesda. And Warren Gesda is on, uh, uh, is on the um, Murrumbidgee River, and it's just near a place called Darlington Point. It was started by a guy called John Gribble. John Gribble in 1880 started Warren Gesda. John Gribble had a relatively comfortable life with a congregational church in southwestern uh, New South Wales. But he is watching literally Indigenous people die under trees and no one cared. So he got this land together and you can, it's, it's owned now on a, on a farm. It's actually very hard to get um, access to. There's almost, uh, there's only one building left that we filmed in front of. And John Gribble starts Warangesta to give Indigenous people an opportunity. Nobody wanted to see it succeed. He would catch the train back to Sydney and beg for money that it would continue. Settlers wanted to push him off the land because they wanted the land for their own sheep and cattle. It was people like John Gribble and Lancelot Threckold and others who made an enormous difference motivated by their love of Jesus and their love of the Indigenous people in this nation. We have a fabulous heritage that we need to tell in that area. The third is the impact of governors in the adolescence of Australia. The governors in the earliest years of our nation. And one was Lachlan Macquarie. Now, You've probably heard the name Lachlan Macquarie. One of the reasons you've heard the name Lachlan Macquarie, while he and his wife Elizabeth were, were Christians, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment, they basically named tons of Australia after themselves. <laughs> so while they were growing in their discipleship, humility wasn't part of the, 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 uh, 
the area that they were working on. Uh, and, and, but Lachlan Elizabeth Quarry, Lachlan had a checkered history as a young man, married Elizabeth, very pious, committed Anglican, on the way out here, reading the Bible and asking themselves this question. What does it mean to be a Christian governor? Now, what does it mean to be a Christian politician is, is a difficult thing to work out and, and people have struggled with how to do that well. What does it mean when you're a governor in charge of basically criminals sent out here to the end of the world to rot? What does it mean to be in charge of a whole bunch of convicts? What does that mean? And the thing that came across Lachlan Macquarie that, that was incredibly important and passionate for him was that God had given him a second chance, that God had, had, had saved him, that God was the God of second chance, the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of the opportunity. And here's, here's where Lachlan Macquarie landed. If I have experienced the grace and mercy of God, how much more should I pass that on to everybody I can? The governor before Lachlan Macquarie emancipated, now emancipated is a fancy word that means gave freedom to. Governor Bly gave freedom to, emancipated two convicts. Lachlan Macquarie in around eight years emancipated 1,550 convicts. And that was all based on his, this, this, this notion that God has forgiven me and my job is to pass that on to others. Now, that's important at any time in history. But keep in mind at that point of history, there was the notion that this was the criminal class. It's like they were born criminals, they're gonna die criminals, they can't be helped. And there were even those within the Christian church who tended to think that that was the way it was. Lachlan Macquarie actually got himself into quite deep trouble with the establishment of England because he believed in forgiveness and a second chance. And Lachlan Macquarie gave that to the people of Australia. If you wanna ask the question, that notion of the equality of all people, the opportunity for a second chance, the opportunity to have a go, and is part of our culture, it would not be too much of a stretch to, to say that Lachlan Macquarie, all those years ago, started that. Another person who was a, who was, who was a guy called Richard Burke. Richard Burke was the governor of New South Wales in the 1830s. Have you noticed when you drive around, certainly New South Wales, probably Victoria as, as well, that you go into these little towns and there are four churches. Have you noticed that? And there's, there's, there's four small churches and they all look quite old and they all look the same. And, and it's, you know, it's funny because you, 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 if I tell you that, you'll think, yeah, I've noticed that, but it's, we kind of be just so used to it. So why are they all there? There was a thing called the 1836 Church Act and it was started by Richard Burke. And Richard Burke was a high church Anglican and Richard Burke believed as a high church Anglican that, that religion was good for a country and religion was good for a community. But if you're going to have religion and you're going to have faith, you're going to have to give them a building to meet in. Richard Burke started the 1836 Church Act, which said this, if you are a gathering of Catholics, Anglicans, Presbyterians or Wesleyans, Baptists and the Pentecostals missed out. <laughs> The Baptists were around at that time, but they believed in you know, a, a very uh, dignified, valued position of separation of church and state, so didn't get involved. Uh, but those four churches did. And Richard Burke, for 30 to 40 years, would buy, pay for the building of churches all over Australia. 
We have, we, this country, and I'm just about to jump on a soapbox. This country, the churches of this country, in the 1830s through to about the 1880s was gifted what is now worth billions of dollars of resources. You know what's happening? They're slowly selling them off and putting it into general revenue. And nobody's held accountable. And it's an enormous disappointment. But here, what do, you, what do we see? Here is a governor that's setting up the culture of our nation by instilling churches into, into local communities. Let me just bounce over at Latrobe to say this. In the, one of the key influences on Australia was the 19th century, uh, those who immigrated to Australia in the 19th century were deeply impacted by the revivals in the UK. It's, we cannot underestimate the fact that in the UK, because of John Wesley, uh, George Whitfield, and the Wesleyan revivals and revivals because of Whitfield all the way across England, Scotland, Wales, England, you had this enormous influence of the gospel in, in, in England at the time. There were people in Australia who were going back to England to recruit people to Australia who were deeply influenced by that. And one was J.D. Lang. Now, J.D. Lang was a Presbyterian. He must have been the most annoying, contrary guy that the world has ever seen. He got jailed twice, once for libel and once for not telling his, selling his, uh, to paying his bills. But J.D. Lang was absolutely committed to Australia, absolutely committed to the gospel and absolutely committed to drawing a whole new generation of people into this nation. J.D. Lang would go back to England, especially to, to Scotland and recruit. Literally, they think he recruited 10,000 people to move to Australia. He wrote a book that, that, that talked about the virtues of Australian cotton because what he wanted to do was undermine cotton in other parts of the world to undermine the slave trade. J.D. Lang had an incredible influence in this nation. In fact, there was a Bulletin magazine in 1880, look back over the first 100 years of Australia, Bulletin magazine, secular magazine, and asked the question, who are the most influential people? in this nation, in the first 100 years, and guess who they landed on as the most influential person? J.D. Lang, a Presbyterian. This series is overwhelmed by Presbyterians because everybody we came across that made an enormous influence ended up being a Presbyterian. And I think it was the influence of J.D. Lang. A guy called George Fife Angus. Uh, for those of you from South Australia, you should know the name. Do you know the name George Fife Angus? George Fife Angus, in a kind of odd way, ended up with uh, owning about 11,000 hectares of, of South Australia before he came here. The shots that's going to be on the background just as I'm talking is, is actually um, of, of uh, Angus Town, which is named after George Fife Angus. And we're about to see the ute pull up in front of Colling Grove. Colling Grove, not Colling Wood. Just getting that clear for those of you a bit over uh, 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 with um, AFL. Uh, George Five Angus eventually moved. This was one of his houses. The other house is owned by Golden Farms Horse Racing and wouldn't let us on to film. Uh, uh, George Five Angus was a committed evangelical, committed Christian and wanted to see Australia and South Australia influenced for, by the person of Jesus. There were a bunch of people who came to visit uh, George Fife Angus from Lutherans from what was then called Prussia. And they felt they were being uh, oppressed in Prussia by the Queen of Prussia at the time. George Fife Angus said to them, you should move to South Australia. 
He helped 400 of them emigrate to South Australia, hence the wine growing district of the Barossa Valley. And aren't we all pleased? At least one of our friends are pleased. And even as a Baptist, even I'm pleased. When we were doing this series, one of the things that we talked, that I wanted to do was politics. And here was my area of greatest ignorance because I thought, well, when we do politics, we'll have people like, uh, you know, the, the kind of conservative side, the Liberal, Liberal Country Party. I guess we'll get, I wonder if we can find anybody from the Labor side. How stupid was I? How ignorant was I? And one of the things that I, we discovered as we looked at, at the history of Australia was people with, like this, W.G. Spence. Has anybody heard of W.G. Spence? W.G. Spence came from the, the Wimmera area in Victoria. W.G. Spence was a Presbyterian. W.G. Spence was a Sabbath-observing, teetotaling, Bible-believing Presbyterian. W.G. Spence started the Shearers' Union. W.G. Spence started the Miners' Union. And W.G. Spence was key in starting the AWU. He also helped formed the Labor Party and was one of the first Labor Party politicians. W.G. Spence, Bob Hawke was actually once quoted as saying W.G. Spence was a huge influence on the union movement in Australia. Let me give you another name, James McGowan. Jim McGowan was the first Labor Premier of New South Wales. He was a boilermaker in, in, in background. He was a unionist and became a Labor Party politician and Andrew Fisher, my mate Andrew Fisher drives the Jesus Ute, but it's not him. Andrew Fisher was uh, uh, from the Miners' Union in Queensland, Scottish in his background, came to Australia. He was Prime Minister of Australia three times in the kind of between, uh, in and around First and Second World War. Question, what is the one thing that these three guys had in common other than the fact I just said they were Protestants? They all ran the Sunday school in their local church before they went into politics. These men were deeply influenced by the person of Jesus. I talked to Paul Rowe, who calls himself the Outback Historian. We interviewed Paul three different times, once at Burke. And at Burke, I was chatting about W.G. Spence because just in a pub just down the road in Burke is where the Shearers Union uh, got together and there was a huge strike. Uh, Paul Rose said it was close to civil war in Australia and the Shearers Union met in a pub down the road. And I said to Paul Rowe, what was it that, that caused W.G. Spence to be involved in the, the union movement? He said, you know, he, what he believed from what he read about Jesus in the Bible was on, on Sundays, the church's job is to look after men. Yes, he just talks about men. But during the week, that's the union's job. And we need to stand with men in the unions. Now, in all of that process, we talked to uh, Steve Shavora. And Steve Shavora said this about a very early election in New South Wales. start of the Labour Party and the Labour movements in Australia, there was Christian involvement. In 1891, for example, in the New South Wales Labour Party, in its first election, 35 Labour MPs are elected. 21 of them are evangelicals, 9 of them are Methodists. In fact, at the time, the Catholic newspaper, the, uh, the Freeman's Journal, complained about the Labour Party, saying that this is a party that's just full of Bible punchers and pulpit thumpers. 
When was the last time you heard the Labour Party described as Bible punches and pulpit thumpers? Here is this notion that until the Second World War and then after that with the movement into Marxism and a lot of the, some of the Labour movement following that, that philosophy, before that, the Labour Party and the union movement were dominated by Protestant Christian leaders. If you're in the Labour movement and you want to have a union gathering, who did you want to speak for you? Was someone who could read and someone who could speak and someone who could be trustworthy. Mostly they were Christians. What we see in our nation is a deep influence of the person of Jesus. And some of our great social institutions uh, had their origins in Christian faith. And one of those is the Royal Flying Doctor Service. For those of you who don't know, the Royal Flying Doctor Service was started by a Presbyterian. Uh, and John Flynn uh, was, a, uh, was a Presbyterian minister. Here's Paul Rowe just chatting about the star of the Flying Doctors and John Flynn. I think. Let's try that again. See if it starts this time. was not started by the government. Not at all. No, it grew out of the imagination of one young bloke, actually. Yeah. Wow, who was that? John Flynn. Uh, and uh, he lived in backcountry Victoria around Horsham uh, before the turn of the 20th century. The son of a school teacher. Uh, got a heart. At 16, he got a call from God. He thought, I want to do something for Australia. And I uh, went to Bible College, didn't do all that well. They, they sort of fluffed him out the door. Uh, he ended up a circuit preacher in Gippsland. He borrowed a saying from a missionary, Wilfred Dreadful, over in Canada. He said, if you want to commend your gospel to men, you first of all do something for them that they understand. Yeah. He'd written a letter to his dad at 21, said, you know, Dad, if the gospel of Jesus is the real thing, uh, we need to find a way of expressing it to the people of the bush. It's no good building churches out here. They need hospitals. A, a, a minister and, and, and follower of Jesus with a, with a great commission on his heart and a burden for our nation uh, started to help wherever he could. He went out to Gippsland and then, as, as Paul Rowe said, then into Northern South Australia. One of the things that John Flynn did in the earliest days was to write a thing called the Bushman's Companion. If you go to uh, the Royal Flying Doctor Service Museums, you can buy, still buy a copy of the Bushman's Companion. It says, and he gave away literally thousands of copies of the Bushman's Companion. It's this really interesting little book that he wrote and developed. It actually has some first aid guides in it. It had some uh, Henry Lawson poetry in it. It had some uh, kind of hints about what you should do. It had messages from the Bible in it. It also had the outline of a funeral. Now you're probably thinking, why would you do an outline of a funeral? Mostly we don't, we don't understand that because if you are in the middle of Australia and it's in the middle of the uh, eight, late 1800s, you have no, no clue, no, no help. No one's there if something goes wrong. You are days walk or ride away from the nearest station, which is then potentially weeks away from any help like a hospital. And, uh, John, uh, and John Flynn had heard about uh, uh, some guys where one of the Bushmen had died. And so they had a funeral, the Bushmen. So they dug the grave and thought, 
what do we do? And they sang, he's a jolly good fellow and old Lang Syne. Because <laughs> they had no idea. And one of the stories that John Flynn tells, all, told all the time apparently was a guy called Darcy Moore. And Darcy Moore was up in the Kimberley area, fell off his horse and apparently did serious damage to his spleen. They dragged him, it took a day or so, his mates dragged him to a place where there was Morse code. The Morse code, they get the Morse code to, to Perth, but the trouble is it was so far, they had to go from one place to another place to Perth on Morse code. They got a doctor in Perth and over Morse code, the doctor asked a bunch of questions, they tell him, they come back to him and said, you're gonna to have to operate. Like these are his mates. What have you got? Condi's crystals and a razor blade. And over Morse code, he talked them through an operation. Then he got on a boat from Perth and spent six, like about six to seven days going up the coast and then all the way in and he, Darcy died the day before he got there. And the point is this, what was, what was John Flynn's heart for the people of the outback? He wanted families out there. He wanted people to live out there. He wanted the safety for them. And hence this notion, and he worked actually with Hudson Fish who started Qantas and they started developing what would be uh, 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 an air ambulance. But intriguingly, one of their biggest issues was communication. So how do you communicate out there? No phone, <laughs> no internet, nothing. And, and, it was so, and the trouble is for Morse code to work, you needed power. And how do you get power out there? So John Flynn, developing the, 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 the plane, goes to AWA, which was the biggest telecommunications group in Australia at the time, and says to them, this is what I need. I need this out in the bush. And they said, look, that's decades away. He's like, I don't have decades. So he goes to a guy whose name was Alf Traeger, who came from the back blocks of, 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 uh, back blocks of, of Adelaide. And he talked to Alf Traeger and Alf Traeger came up with the pedal radio, which actually gave the opportunity for the bush to speak to places where they needed help. Not only that, Alf Traeger, John Flynn, the Royal Flying Doctor Service actually also became the basis of the School of the Air. What are all these stories telling you? And I'm saying to you, this is a small piece that our role is to tell the stories of faith that made our nation. That's our role. And our role is to help people understand the stories of faith within our nation. And the problem is while we'll sit here together and go, yes, we've got an important part in our nation, in the wider community, we tend not to. We tend to feel a bit apologetic about our place. We tend to feel a bit unsure about whether we should push in to, to, to our space. And yet what we need to understand is that this nation, one of the four reasons that this nation was set up, and Stuart Piggin and Robin Lidner write about this in their book, one was a penal colony, two was the idea of a, a military spot for the, the British Empire in this part of the globe, three was trade from this part of the globe, four was an evangelical experiment. And there were those who said, what if we place Christians right in the beginning? What if we place the gospel of Jesus right in the beginning? What if a nation starts with the message of Jesus right at the beginning? And you might be thinking, well, that's clearly a bit of a failure, Carl. Except if you go back to the 1950s. Now, I'm not saying 1950s was Christendom. I'm not saying that 1950s was perfect. Don't hear me saying that. All I'm saying is 
If they set this up as an evangelical experiment, what does the 1950s tell us about what Australia was like? 95% of people ticked a Christian box in the census. Now keep in mind, when they did the first census in 1901, it was 96%. By the 1950s, it was still 96%. Three out of five people said that they went to church every week. I was chatting to Joe about this. Don't believe those stats, but at least they said they were gonna go to church. Here was this notion, and there's a guy called uh, Robert Inglis who was a writer in uh, a current, wrote in a current affairs, just a secular writer, and he looked at Australia and he said this, by sheer weight of numbers, you would have to say this place is a Christian nation. Because the people who went, what they said they held to, and when Billy Graham turned up, the clips you saw in the trailer, 25% of Australia, three million people turned up to see Billy Graham. 1.25% of the nation actually signed that they're following Jesus. That was 143,000 people. You know that the biggest crowd that the MCG has ever had was in May 1959 when Billy Graham held his last gathering, 140,000 people. If you do a tour of the, of, of the uh, MCG, they will tell you that's the biggest crowd. At that point, we were closest to revival. At that point, there was a deep influence of Christian faith on our nation. At that point, the evangelical experiment looked really strong. So what am I saying to you tonight? What is the message coming out of tonight? What are we saying? Our role is to tell stories of faith. Our role is to tell the stories of faith that made our nation. But to quote a, a, another writer who I won't mention because half of you will love him and the other half will hate him, uh, Jordan Peterson. Um, <laughs> Jordan Peterson has a chapter in his book, 12, I don't agree with everything Jordan Peterson says, but his, his book, 12 Rules to Life, has some, some good stuff to say. And one of the things he says is put your shoulders back, get your head up, look people in the eye and speak about what we believe in. And if I want to say anything to the Christian church, and I've said this a lot around this series, don't take this the wrong way, but stop apologising. Stop being sorry for what you believe. Stop apologising as if we don't have a place. Stop pretending that we're out on the edge and everybody dislikes us. Stop pretending that we haven't had a deep, lasting influence in this nation. Be people. Be those who are proud of our heritage, proud of our faith, proud of what we stand for and recognise that we have helped make this nation the great nation it is. Not so we can say, oh, we should be in charge. That's not our role. But our role is to be proud of who we are. And our role is to, is to be upfront, clear, unapologetic. As, as Bill was saying before, Jesus is what's gonna make a difference in our nation. That happened in the past. That will happen in the future. I look forward to working with you to see that happen. Bless you guys, thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Anna. I trust that during the service, God was moving in your heart and His presence was where you are. Just before we say goodbye today, I'd love to give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. If today's message spoke to you, or you've been considering believing in Jesus as your Saviour, then I would love to invite you to do that now. Would you repeat this short prayer after me? Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died for my sins and that you rose again to give me life. 
I ask you to forgive my sins and be my Lord and my Saviour. I open my heart to you today. Amen. If you said yes to Jesus today, we would love to hear from you. We would love to celebrate with you, pray with you and help you start your Jesus journey. Visit our website manninghamcc.org and go to the I Said Yes page. Fill out your details and one of our leaders will get in touch with you. We would love to hear your story. Hey, thanks for joining in today and being part of our service. If you enjoyed today's service, would you click the share button and subscribe to MCC so you can stay connected? We all need some good news and we would love to hear how God has spoken to you today. Visit manninghamcc.org and fill out a good news story form today. If you would love to know more how to grow in your relationship with God, then Next Steps provides the path for you. Visit manninghamcc.org to find out more. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.